Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Michael Walden. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. And today's show topic is why we die. So it might've occurred to you that this sounds like a fairly morbid topic, but lots of you out there have wanted me to do a show on how it is that humans die. And now a few of you, maybe a dozen or so, I actually contacted and asked what interests you in a show about why we die. And most of those dozen or so people said that they hope to gain insight about how to live better if they understood more about the physiologic and energetic processes that underlie death. And not only death, but how we die over time. I mean, you've heard this before. As soon as you're born, you're on the road to dying or something similar, right? And that is true. Every passing second, minute, hour, day, month, year, years, we get closer and closer to death. So what are some of the ways in which we know the aging process moves us towards death? And more importantly, I would think, what can we learn from those processes in terms of our daily health choices to either reverse and or slow down the aging process to delay as long as reasonably possible the time it'll take until we actually reach death? And again, many of you have said to me in your emails and your texts and your, your letters that you're mostly concerned with not so much living longer, but living better. And I've addressed this in prior shows, like the anti-aging show on longevity, where I talked about living longer in what's known as the non-disability stage of life. And the non-disability stage of life has to do with, well, what it sounds like. Living as long as possible so that you are mentally and emotionally and physically able to enjoy life to its fullest. I'd like to just comment from the beginning that I've heard from various patients of mine over the years that, well, the more skeptical ones, they'll say something like, Dr. Wald, you know, why try so hard to eat right and take nutritional supplements and exercise and all that stuff uh, and, and give up all the fun things in life just to possibly live longer? And I mean, my response to that is, well, why not? If you enjoy life and what life has to give you, why not live longer? Now, I've also seen in my practice people who have lived very long lives. I think the oldest one was about 104. And that particular individual had a very high quality of life the entire time until he died very peacefully uh, in his sleep one night. But on the other hand, and this is much more the the scenario that I see is I see individuals who 
are in their 60s and 70s, and they are suffering from a multitude of health problems, what we call disease clusters. Not only do they have memory problems, but they have arthritis. Not only, not only do they have arthritis and memory problems, they've had cancer or they have cancer or they're constipated. And the list goes on and on. Those are called disease clusters. So as the body ages, or I should say, as some of us, well, some of us age in that way, but there are others that do not age that way. So what are the factors that we know control the aging process? And I wanna say at the onset of, of this part of the discussion that virtually every factor that we know impacts the way that we age is responsive to changes in our lifestyles. In other words, there are things that we can do on a daily basis that literally change how we age. The first is genetics. Some people are born with genetics that allow them a healthy, long life. And patients, some patients will say to me, Dr. Wald, you know, why should I do all this stuff you're saying when, you know, my uncle Max, um, he's 92 and he smokes two packs of cigarettes every day, eats steak every day. He's never exercised a day in his life. And I've heard this a number of times over the years. And the response is simple. That is the exception to the rule. That is certainly not the rule. It's an interesting psychological phenomenon to observe people taking rare examples like Uncle Max living long and defying all of the things that we call healthy and still living a long life in spite of what he's doing. And globalize that into thinking, well, if Uncle Max can eat this way and live this way, then I should be able to do that. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Most individuals who treat themselves badly will influence their genetics in a, in a certain way that will have them age very, very badly. So we're talking about genetics. So we're born with genetics. We get a certain amount of genetics from our mother and our father. And those genetics come together and they create a certain genetic potential for longevity and disease. There is a difference between living longer and also being healthy. People can live long with multiple diseases. Other people can live long with no diseases, really. Um, and then, of course, there are most of us that get killer diseases somewhere beginning mostly in our 50s uh, through about 75. That's the, the time within which we see the greatest amount of everything from prostate cancer to breast and ovarian cancer to colon cancer to arthritis to autoimmune diseases, you name it. It occurs in that period of life, which is our, I would say, practically our greatest potential for, for participating in life uh, to its fullest, only to be cut short by these diseases in so many people. Now, we're born with these genetics and they are wired in a certain way. One way of looking at it, and people have said this to me, they'll again say, Dr. Wald, you know, we have these genetics, I have family genetics where, you know, everyone's getting heart attacks and they're 60s and they're dying young. Yes, that probably does have a very strong genetic underpinning. But usually these individuals too, paid no attention to their lifestyles. 
So their average diets or unhealthy lifestyle uh, habits, such as not exercising or exercising maybe inconsistently, uh, washes over the genes and has the genes express in this way. I'll give you another example of that. People say to me, Dr. Wald, my doctor told me that the fact that I have high cholesterol is due to genetics because my mom had it, my dad had it, my uncle had it. And I say, well, they also, you also might have inherited bad lifestyle habits. Where is the proof that genetics is causing all this? And then lo and behold, we make some adjustments in his life and all of a sudden the cholesterol is fine. So the genetics didn't seem to be such a factor. However, depending on the disease and condition, there are certain genetic glitches that are more or less responsive to changes in lifestyle. So for example, colon cancer is very much influenced by lifestyle. So we know that individuals who eat meat, even if it's farm-raised meat, often in their lifetime, tend to uh, develop colon cancer. And we also know that colon cancer is so responsive to being triggered by meat consumption, it's also equally as responsive, colon cancer that is, by the removal of the meat. So once a person has colon cancer, if they remove meat from their diet, even at that time of diagnosis, they have a far better outcome. Lots of other diseases don't necessarily respond so quickly that way, which might be a surprise to you. Um, I've seen some patients that have said to me, well, okay, so I have this autoimmune problem, I have cancer, so if I change my diet and I eat alkaline or eat vegetarian, then I should be good, right? That's gonna cure my cancer, right? And the answer is maybe, but probably not. Uh, a person will definitely need nutritional supplements and a lot of them, not just the most powerful mushroom you've heard of or vitamin C. The thing about disease and curing disease is that it is complex. And to influence genetics and one's genetic predisposition to disease usually takes a large number of nutritional factors. Some of them come from the diet, obviously, and others should come from nutritional supplements because nutritional supplements provide very high concentrations of phytonutrients, for example, if you're taking, let's say, powdered uh, vegetables and, and fruits, like a dehydrated sort of... Um, uh, powder superfood, like my, my detox powders one through four are the equivalent taking one scoop of eating 72 pieces of fruits and vegetables a day, which no person in their right mind could possibly ever do. But by doing that, they influence genetic expression. And that's what's called nutrigenomics, the ability of foods or food concentrates to influence in a positive way genetic expression to cure disease or to slow it down in some way, shape, or form. So when it comes to genetics, it's always in the background. It can never be removed, but is best influenced in a positive way by figuring out what the appropriate lifestyle factors are for each person. Some people respond much better to vegetarian diets than others with their disease. Another disease like dementia or neuropathy, nerve pain, or multiple sclerosis, seizures, for example, anything neurologic tends to respond best to a ketogenic approach 
But if the, the individual who, let's say an individual with MS, uh, they would do best on a ketogenic diet, but if they were gluten intolerant, then it would have to be a ketogenic diet, which, is, uh, which eliminates gluten. And if that individual also had allergies to you know, tomatoes and strawberries, then those foods would need to be removed. And then if that individual malabsorbed, the dose of, the, of certain supplements would need to be increased. And if that person exercised a, a particular way, then their protein, carbohydrate, and healthy fat intake needs to be adjusted accordingly. Even when the, the person eats, and, and then the timing of their nutrients relative to their meals, even the timing of their exercise relative to their meals, can dramatically change the effects of nutrition upon the body. So those are several factors that, that I look into with individuals because the people that I mostly see are individuals who are very smart, uh, listen to radio shows like this and, and others on uh, PRN, and they've been attempting to improve their health through natural means for a decade or more, certainly smarter than the average individual in this area. But a common missing part is the individualization of the efforts. Sometimes that can be the whole thing. So if we generalize and say, well, being a vegan is the best thing in the world, I have seen vegan patients with cancer because they did veganism wrong for their bodies, either they were protein deficient, couldn't make immunoglobins to build their immunoglobin immune system, or did not intake enough B12 or folic acid uh, and or iron, for example, due to their veganism, they can create everything from iron, B12 and folic acid anemia. And if that person genetically did not methylate normally, that means activate B12 and folic acid to their methylated forms to correct certain genetic problems in the body, like cancer cells, then that's how even a vegan diet can get a person in trouble. Think of it this way. If, um, well, hopefully you exercise. So if you exercise, let's say you like to walk and you like to walk long distances or you walk up hills, that's great. And if you're doing a certain number of miles per week, and you're deficient in carbohydrates, you're gonna have muscle aches and pains, you're gonna have more fatigue, you're gonna be tired during the day, for example. Even if you have some healthy diet, if the healthy diet doesn't compensate for the carbohydrates you need to replace glycogen in your muscles and your liver from your exercise efforts, then the exercise is actually harmful, using up reserves you do not have, and makes you predisposed to more injury. So let's talk about physical fitness for a second because this is a very misunderstood um, part of, of wellness, uh, even in my area and among people who seem to know a lot about nutrition. And I'll just say it right out to you. The majority of people that I see have no idea what, what is good exercise and what the right exercise is for them. The closest they get is having some vague idea that they should do some sort of exercise. Maybe some of them walk, um, you know, walk for three miles a day, or others might have an exercise bike. Others might do a few lightweight movements in the gym, uh, but they lack a focus. You need to ask yourself, number one, why are you working out? Is it for increased strength? Do you want strength coordination? And do you want to keep the shape of your body? Do you want to improve the shape of your body? Do you want to lose weight? 
Do you want all of those things? And what are your particular injuries? Maybe you have a knee problem, an ankle problem, maybe it's a shoulder problem. So my job is to take all of those factors and figure out the best way that an individual can exercise to overcome their injuries if that's possible. Because if you don't work on your injuries and you've just settled with them and said, well, you know, I've had these problems forever, they're not going anywhere. And let's say you're 65. Well, you know, before long, you might be completely immobile or certainly you become more and more immobile as you cannot move fully. You can't get your heart rate up to a point which burns fat appropriately, which moves your lymphatic system, increases your circulation, improves your detoxification, and improves your health span. So exercise programs must be based upon what the individual's needs are. And as part of a longevity program, the right exercise can slow and reverse a variety of aging parameters dramatically. So as a 53-year-old man, I am musculoskeletally speaking, meaning through strength and movement and coordination and balance, far healthier than I've ever been, ever in my life, with no injuries whatsoever. Had I, did I have injuries in the past? I did. I had a right shoulder injury, a right neck injury, a knee injury, both feet. But my philosophy is, as soon as these injuries come about, I focus on them like a laser and I work through what I need to do to rehab those areas so that you don't accumulate injury over time. Because one of the ways we age is accumulated injury over time. There's little microscopic injury which comes macroscopic, and then before you know it, one day your back goes out, as if that wasn't an accumulation of breakdown events that occurred that you either kind of knew was happening, you had some discomfort, or you may not have. You might have just bent down the quote unquote wrong way today and all of a sudden all hell broke loose. So there's no amount of nutritional supplements, no amount of meditation you're gonna do uh, that will take the place of a physical fitness routine. Everyone should have a physical fitness routine that includes strength building, coordination and flexibility, and aerobic capacity. So now you're, want, you're thinking, okay, well, what should I do exactly? I have no idea what you should do because I don't know you, but that is very important. Just going to the gym and pushing some weights around or taking a spin class twice a week or doing yoga three times a week, that's not going to do it. Tai Chi, yoga, these are wonderful for, potentially wonderful for mental, emotional health and that sort of thing. But the traditional way that yoga and Tai Chi are performed do not really increase strength and maintain lean body mass, which simply atrophies as you go older. We need to add the dimension of resistance training and a type of fitness, everyone, that increases your heart rate to between 70 to possibly 85% of your heart rate max. Now, the disclaimer is, I don't know you. Do not take any of the information on this radio show and misconstrue it as specific health advice for you because it's not. I don't know if you have a heart problem. You might not know that you have one. Meaning, it's important to know where you're at and then, as long as you're cardiovascularly healthy, taking the number 220 and minusing your age, then you get your heart rate max, 
which is somewhat accurate. And then if you're just starting out, I, want, I might want you only to begin exercising at let's say 60% of your heart rate's max. So I would multiply the 220 minus the age by 60%. And that number is where you should stay 80% of your exercise effort with 10% at the beginning of your exercise as a warm up and 10% at the end as a warm down. And then as your fitness improves at that level, we go up in percentage of your heart rate max. If you don't challenge your body through improving your VO2 max, meaning your lung capacity, your circulation, and if you don't challenge your musculoskeletal system for balance, strength, coordination, then you simply lose those functions. As we get older, as you get older, you will age and you will atrophy. That means you shrink, not only in height, but your muscles and your organs also shrink, which is why that any health effort that improves the retention of your lean body mass, lean body mass is everything on your body other than fat and water. Anything that you do that increases your lean body mass, mass tends to be associated with being longer lived and living longer during the non-disability stage of life. Now, the last show, I talked about something called phase angle. If you missed that show, you need to listen to it because phase angle is a test that actually measures your cell energetics. And your cell energetics is related to your lean body mass. So a simple test that takes three minutes can tell you your phase angle and your lean body mass to know if your exercise efforts, if your healthy lifestyle efforts are truly reducing your risk of early demise from early onset disease. And if your efforts are likely going to increase your lifetime you know, on this earth within the non-disability stage of life. That's how important measuring a phase angle is. So go back on that other show and listen to it. You can find it also on my blog at intmedny.com. So that's my website. That's intmedny.com. Under the blog section, just scroll down and you'll find the phase angle show. And I have other videos under the video section, which you'll see on my homepage or any of my pages. And for those of you just joining us, we're talking about how it is we die for the purpose of figuring out what we might do to not only stay on the earth longer, but stay on the earth longer during the non-disability stage of life. And we've just discussed the basics of physical fitness. I did a show as well, which you'll find on my blog about exercise. So that'll give you some more details. But exercise programs should be individually based, based upon where you're starting out on all levels of fitness or lack of fitness, aerobic, anaerobic, musculoskeletal, balance, coordination, lean body mass, all of that. And then you want to do biomarker tests like phase angle and body composition to, to check in to make sure that the way you're eating and living is changing favorably these biomarkers. So what, where did the term biomarkers pop in all of a sudden? Biomarkers are tests 
which are proven to predict health span and rate of disease. So the show that I did on testing talks about a bunch of biomarkers, but I'll just rattle off a few of them right now that if you do these sorts of tests and you check them against your health efforts, if they improve, then beyond just you feeling good, which can be transient and short-lived, someone could feel good and be dead the next day. But if your biomarkers are very good and you feel good, the chances are you probably won't be dead the next day. Phase angle, which you can measure during a body composition test, absorption tests, your vitamin C level, the te tests of vitamin C use, tests of oxidation, of calcium use, your blood pH, not your saliva or urine pH, your blood pH, and your blood levels of lactic acid and nitric oxide. I did a show called Biomarkers, which will describe these tests even further. For those of you, you that have questions about these tests, email me at info at blooddetective.com. That's info at blooddetective.com. My phone number, by the way, for those of you that want to work with me either at a distance or in person is 914-552-1442. So once again, we talked about some exercise basics. We're trying to figure out ways and strategies of daily living to offset the dying process. So there are a few key theories as to why human beings age. I'll give you just a few of them, but there are others. One is called the hormone decline theory, the hormone decline theory. And it's basically what it sounds like. As you grow older, your hormone levels generally drop and hormones have stabilizing and reparative effects as long as their levels are correct in the body to maintain the body's functionality as long as possible. But our genetics has hardwired, it's thought, aging to flip some genetic switches in different people at different times so that our hormone levels either decline or, listen up though, this is the second part's important, either your hormones will decline and your health will decline or your hormone levels look just fine. But your cells, or I should say your tissue's receptivity to the hormones in the blood are reduced. So it's like you have less hormone, but you don't. You know, it's kind of like being exposed to a smoker and the first few times you're exposed to the smoker, you're coughing, but eventually you don't cough. The smoke is still there, the smoker is still there, but you've accommodated to the toxin. It's not any less toxic. You're not any less affected by it. So if you have hormones in your blood, but as you age, let's say your brain cells or your heart cells or your gut cells become less attentive to the hormones, they become less sensitive to, to the hormones in the blood. That's called hormone insensitivity. Just like insulin resistance, most of you probably have heard of insulin resistance, right? We talk about insulin resistance as meaning that the body does not, the body cells do not register the presence of insulin and the blood sugar just goes up, 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 up. So insulin resistance is something that you see in diabetes, which is characterized by hyperglycemia. And also you'll see insulin resistance in metabolic syndrome or syndrome X, which is a condition where a person has a tendency genetically 
for high cholesterol, high blood sugar, and high blood pressure. Now, don't be fooled if you have maybe two of these right now and not the third. Or some of you are saying, well, maybe, you know, I have two of those and the other one, I, I was told I'm borderline, I'm good. No, you're not. Borderline is not good, okay? Borderline is bad. So many intelligent people I see have been misdirected in terms of how to interpret their laboratory work by their doctors. Their doctors don't mean to do it. It's just their training. So here's an example. I'll hear a patient say, well, uh, Dr. Wald, I, um, you're asking me about my blood pressure. My blood pressure is good. It's uh, 130 uh, over uh, 80. And uh, my doctor says it was borderline, but we're good. And I could see on their faces sometimes that if I tell them it's not good, they'll start to cry. But the truth of the matter is I can't lie. So that is borderline hypertensive. So if something's borderline hypertensive, which has a tendency to increase, increased blood pressure, then over time it tends to increase more. Things that tend to go up, tend to go up more. Things that are on the way down tend to come down more. So it's very important to figure out these, these problems as early as possible. Or if there seems to be genetic propensities in the family for this or that symptom or condition, you wanna take some preventative measures first because preemptive, the preemptive strike is much easier and more effective compared to dealing with the disease once it happens. So what do you do and why do you die earlier when your hormones decline? Well, for example, if your testosterone decreases, the brain tends to shrink. It loses neurons. And these nerve cells, neurons, control various functions in the body. So in some people, a low testosterone will look like multiple sclerosis and degeneration in the brain um, called placking. In other individuals, their low testosterone will result in poor muscle tone, loss of elasticity of the skin, loss of libido, in men ability to have an erection, maintain an erection. And testosterone also helps the immune system. So either it's low or the body becomes resistant to it. And one could use nutrition to improve the, improve the cell's sensitivity to the hormone. Now you might say, well, why not just take the hormone? Take the hormone, it's good. We can take natural hormones. Well, hold on a second. Natural hormones, if you're getting them anywhere other than your body, they're not natural to you. Am I saying that natural hormones, meaning hormones that are bioidentical to the hormones in most human beings or human beings in general? Yes, that's what I'm talking about. They may be bioidentical, but that doesn't mean that your body knows how to use them right just because you take them. There may be a very good reason, on the other hand, why the body creates hormone resistance. For example, we just talked about testosterone and what happens when the levels drop and how that's not a good thing. Your brain shrinks, could give you dementia, multiple sclerosis, neuropathy, muscle weakness, which causes joint instability, which causes pain, which causes disability. And disability and lack of movement is associated with a shorter life. If you're not moving and you're not dead yet, you're on the way.
I, I often wonder, why is it, how is it that some individuals that I see, they see me and they, they come in at a time where they're barely walking. And I wonder how that just happened. And I gently ask them at times and they'll say to me, well, I'm obligated to ask. They'll say, well, you know, it, it's been over the last couple of decades, you know, it just slowly happened. You know, short of a horrific accident, if you have disability that is slowly happening over time, this is something that can be acted upon. For example, a simple way, if you have reduced mobility of your spine and your joints and you receive good chiropractic care, you're going to maintain not just better mobility of your, your joints, but muscle tone and even strength to some degree. Uh, acupuncture might also keep you much more mobile by reducing muscle spasm and increasing the energetics in muscles, whether it's doing it by activating meridians or just reducing spasms in muscles. I don't know. No one really knows. Maybe it's both, but it seems to have a role in some people. And then of course, you can have the best chiropractic adjustment and do all the yoga you want and exercise, but if your diet and your supplementation is off, your tissues that you want to respond to that exercise and respond to that chiropractic and acupuncture and that yoga and that tai chi, it, the tissues cannot respond and they break down. You know, think about what happens to a broken arm. Have you ever had a broken arm? Uh, I've never had one, but certainly I've ha I had kids. And I remember when my son had a broken arm and we had to put it in this cast. Six months later, we looked at the arm. It looked like a 98-year-old's arm. When you don't move something, it ages exponentially quickly. So movement, movement, movement. I saw a gentleman a few weeks ago. He came to me for cataracts. No, my, my apologies. He came to me for glaucoma. And when I saw him at my office, I was astounded. He could barely walk. He was using a cane. And I said to him, what else is going on with you? And he, he said, well, what do you mean? And he was with his, his wife and his daughter. And I said, well, you can barely move. He says, no, that's just because I can't see. But no, no, that was not right. He was very disabled. He wasn't walking like a person who just couldn't see. He was walking like a person who had Parkinson's disease. Now, he doesn't have Parkinson's disease, but he didn't even recognize that his lack of mobility was not acceptable. Probably because like a lot of people, they accept how their body ages without questioning it. And then if you don't question it, you don't do anything about it. My lifestyle is such that I enjoy a very high level of physical activity. I have no limitations. I went rock climbing last weekend. Um, I lift weights, like I've said on the show before. I do karate, I run. So my, my point is, I, I couldn't do all these things uh, if I did not take care of my needs over the course of my life. If you let any extended period of time go where you don't manage a problem, correctly, it either doesn't go away or it, is, it compounds other problems as well. So once again, 
If you're not moving normally, your blood sugar will probably go up or your blood pressure might go up or you might get uh, fatter. Uh, you might get more sluggish. Uh, you might become constipated. I mean, these things tend to snowball. So how we die is that we allow our bodies to decay and we do not intervene enough. And why wouldn't we intervene enough? Well, for some of us, we just don't know to intervene. We just think that, well, this is my aging and this is, you know, how it goes. It's just not true. I think it's mindset. Uh, my mindset has always been of a sort of a younger mindset where if I want to jump off something or I want to do 25 pull-ups or whatever it is, I can do it. Uh, not because my mind is willing it per se, but because I have the mindset that I want to do those things, so I practice those things. Uh, and I always have. And I made a decision earlier on in my life, I think it was in my 20s, where I said, I want to maintain this level of fitness that I have now forever. And I knew I'd have to push harder over time to do that. Now, one day, of course, as some of you are thinking, it's all over, of course. But we can still push, right? Of course. So we die because we don't recognize our limitations, our disabilities, our health problems. And we don't take the right steps to repair them. We don't exercise or we don't exercise properly and or we don't exercise properly and enough. And we don't exercise in the right ways for our changing needs. The other thing is our hormones decline. Maybe it's DHEA, an adrenal hormone. When that hormone declines, like testosterone, we lose again lean body mass. That means we lose strength and we lose power. We also lose um, ability to learn because these hormones trigger certain neurons in our brains in our learning centers. And the list goes on and on. We also have declines in a hormone known as progesterone, pregnenolone. Pregnenolone is an interesting one. It's very similar to DHEA in that when a person takes pregnenolone and DHEA, they can become much stronger physically uh, if they lift weights, uh, which again impacts every area of your life. I mean, for you to feel more powerful. And these hormones are illegal for uh, professional athletes because they improve reaction time, strength, coordination, um, attentiveness, all of the things that we lose as we age towards death. So with few exceptions, I would recommend certain hormones for people. I also try to first see if we can improve the body's own production of hormones or improve the body's ability to be more receptive to hormones. I'll give you one example of how to do that. So what is one example of how we can improve our cells, any cells in the body, the uh, receptivity to, let's say, DHEA or pregnenolone? Well, most cells in the body have a phospholipid membrane. That's a certain type of fat. And the most abundant phospholipid in most cell membranes of all of our body cells is decosinohexanoic acid. Decosinohexanoic acid is abbreviated DHA, not DHEA, DHA. And if you take in, for example, a liquid form of DHA, it's highly absorbed and it's 
taken in and uptaked by the cells of the body into the cell membranes within around 120 days. You'll maximize the uptake. And when DHEA levels are higher in cell membranes, cell membranes act like younger cell membranes. Now, cell membranes have receptors for hormones on them. They're called hormone receptors. And with the proper DHEA in a cell membrane, the hormone receptors act like younger receptors, which are the type that would recognize hormones around it and use and improve the use of those hormones. For all factors that you can think of in aging, from increased risk of disease when you don't have them, to disability when you don't have them. But again, do not forget, it's not the level of hormone most of the time, it's the cell's receptivity to the hormone. There are several other nutritional examples of ways in which you can increase the cell's receptivity to hormones. I'll give you one more. The use of phytonutrient antioxidants, like the ones in my detox one through four products. If you take the right amount of antioxidants in high enough levels, regularly enough, you will reduce the oxidative inflammatory stress on cell membranes that are aging. When you age, things oxidize. When you anti-age, things antioxidize. Oxidation is like a flame. So if you put a flame on your cell membranes, you break down the membranes, you oxidize them. But if there was some way to regenerate them with antioxidants, they would work better, not just for the recognition of hormones, but all sorts of chemical messengers in the body that are required for what they call cell-to-cell communication. When cell-to-cell communication is going great in the body, when different cells are producing different chemicals that tell other cells to you know, act normally, then we have health. When hormones decline, oxidative stress happens, what we have is loss of cell membrane integrity, loss of receptivity to hormones, and oxidative stress of the membranes, everything's breaking down, which leads us to the second way in which we, we age and die, but also an opportunity to age much better, and that is the oxidant theory of aging. So oxidation is inflammation. So think of oxidation like an egg in a frying pan. You put up the flame, you oxidize the heck out of that egg. If you were somehow able to snuff out the flame with antioxidants, the oxidation would stop. Now in a body, unlike the egg in a frying pan, you can reverse and repair a lot of oxidative stress. So as a person ages, the, the, the law of aging known as the oxidant theory means that stuff just breaks down, it oxidizes. So you need the proper antioxidants. Now here's where most of you are really lost and you don't realize it. You think you know what an antioxidant is, but you don't. If you're like most of the people that I see, you do not know what an antioxidant is. First of all, I'll tell you what an antioxidant is not. An antioxidant may not be an antioxidant. It might be an oxidant. What? All right, let me explain. The term antioxidant, as I've said in past shows, is a misnomer, which means you can take what is called an antioxidant, let's say um, reduced glutathione, that's an antioxidant. Well, if you give that to a person who is deficient in vitamin C, 
that reduced glutathione will likely act like an oxidant, just the opposite. The only way you can really know if your body is overloaded with oxidative stress and if the levels of so-called antioxidants you're taking, you're taking are the correct ones and that you've diminished oxidative stress, which is a good thing to help offset early risk of death and dying and disability, is to measure something in the urine called malonaldialdehyde. Malonaldialdehyde is abbreviated MDA. If you have a bunch of MDA coming out in your urine, that's bad. If you take the right antioxidants, quote, end quote, you should see less and less MDA in your urine. The higher the level of MDA, the higher your risk of dying of anything. That's not an exaggeration, it's true. So we've talked about the hormone decline theory, the oxidative stress theory of aging, and there's also another one called the telomere theory. And for those of you who don't know, the telomere is like a tail, telomere, tail. And we have chromosomes in our body, and then think of them like a pencil. And then coming off the top of the pencil is a hair, and that hair is the telomere. And it's a certain length when you're born, and as you age, it shrinks. And your lifespan is directly related to telomere shortening. There are certain nutrients, lots of phytonutrients, also zinc, for example, that a vitamin D, vitamin A, that have been shown to not only retard the shrinking of the telomere, but even maintain its length, grow a little bit of length back. My Detox 1 through 4 products and superfoods like them that are very high in potential antioxidants and phytonutrients known as polycosinols and long-sounding chemical names like that, they tend to slow down the shortening of the telomere. Reduction in length means shorter lifespan. And if you're healthy or not, it'll mean shorter lifespan. So it's important, in my experience, to make sure that you're consuming a large amount of phytonutrients. And that means you're gonna to have to go beyond the diet and get dehydrated superfood products. So we've got the telomere shortening theory. And by the way, there's nothing you can do um, other than nutrition to, and there are some drugs they're working on right now that can help maintain and, and slow the shrinking of the telomere. And then there's the hormone decline theory and the oxidant theory. Now these different theories, they, they don't occur separately in the body. So when, you have over, when you're overly oxidized and your cell membranes break down, the, the, the hormone receptors on the cell membranes don't work as well, so the hormones either go down or they functionally reduce because, meaning they don't work as well because the cell receptors are all oxidized and stressed out. And that's gonna affect the telomere length. So these aren't mutually exclusive theories of aging. They always occur at the same time in different individuals. So we've talked about some of the different theories of aging, the role of properly balanced exercise. Let's talk about diet for a moment. And then I wanna pull this all together for you. There isn't a day that goes by when someone doesn't say to me, well, I heard that the ketogenic diet is the best diet and someone else says, no, 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 the paleo diet 
uh, is the best diet. The best diet is the figuring out the right way of eating and living for you. Like I said, if you have like a woman who saw me a few days ago, chronic skin eruption, which was caused by hyperhistaminic potential, meaning a histamine just released like crazy in her body, she needs to reduce her exposure to allergic foods that re release histamine. So there's an antihistamine kind of diet. And for her, that would be the best thing for her, at least for that problem. If she had that problem in heart disease or metabolic syndrome, she would need some sort of a Mediterranean diet that has a mixture of all of the histamine producing foods out. And then what if that woman also had high blood pressure? Well, she also would then need to focus on foods higher in, in magnesium. So again, there's no one way of eating. And human beings, this is my observation, tend to think very generally and very black and white. So for example, the person who says, no, no, the paleo diet is the best diet. Best diet for what? I've said it before as well in my show on weight loss and I went through all the different weight loss diets. The paleo whole concept is um, an absolute joke and uh, is actually insulting to people with any intelligence because to presuppose for a moment that there's one way that our Paleolithic ancestors ate, they were like somewhere isolated and we're directly descended from them, so therefore we should eat like them, is ridiculous. So there are our paleo ancestors that lived near the oceans. They tended to have a higher fish diet. Uh, because they had a higher fish diet, they consumed more omega-3s. They, because they consumed more omega-3s, they had larger brains. And because they had larger brains, they were smarter. Because they were smarter, they survived better, etc. And then there were our paleo ancestors that lived far inland. And they had diets consisting of mostly meat. And then just think of this all around the world and the different habitats and different plant products and animals and how we ate as early hominids. So to say there's some paleo diet out there, particularly one that had, that had lots of whey protein in it, <laughs> which I've seen in these, these uh, promoted paleo diets, is ridiculous. Um, do I believe that we should eat closer to the way our ancestors ate? Well, that depends what our ancestors ate. If they ate like crap, I would say no. <laughs> um, if they ate uh, more plant-based foods, I would say, yeah, that seems to be one of the most well-studied, most agreed upon things is that a diet high in vegetables is generally better than one not high in vegetables. Now, I purposely didn't say high in fruit. There are some out there that say fruits are evil because of the sugar. Um, I don't know what they're talking about, except for individuals that have some allergies to fruits or have some obvious reactions to fruits. Um, even diabetics can eat fruit. Um, and to not have fruit, we know, increases our risk of all manner of disease. So I, I don't really know where these statements come from. And I wanna challenge you all to a task for a moment. If you have some preconceived notion about any factor in nutrition, can you please tell me? 
My email is info at blooddetective.com, info at blooddetective.com, because sometimes I'll hear from a person, no, 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 I need a, um, I need a vegetarian diet because I have type A blood, for example. Well, first of all, there's zero evidence that there's anything to the blood type diets. I have seen, I don't know, a few hundred people that have attempted to do blood type diets. And when I look at their chemistries, even when they've lost weight, some of these people, their chemistries look awful. So clearly no one's looking at their chemistries. Um, And when I say there's no evidence for a blood type diet, I mean that. When I wrote my book called The Anti-Aging Encyclopedia of Laboratory Tests, which I wrote for health professionals, it's 500 pages. And as I teach laboratory courses across the country and uh, out of the country, I have never come across any evidence for the blood type diet. Some people will swear by it, like they'll swear by all sorts of things. But unless you could show me some proof that it's helped you, then I don't buy it. Now, if you, you are type A and you do a vegetarian diet or vegan diet, I think that's pretty phenomenal no matter what blood type you're at. But in my book, I looked at over 170 different aspects of the blood. And I have a software program that, that interprets all of these lab tests or any amount of lab tests I get on a patient. Let's say they come in with 30 things or 50 different blood tests. I can figure out their best food plan based on 50 things or 60 or 70 things or 170 things, not just one. Blood type, really? It's, again, it's insulting to intelligence. So when I challenge people, well, what about that makes you think it's good? Just like when I'll ask them that about, let's say, a supplement they're taking. They'll say, well, it's known to be good. I'm like, well, how do you know that the company that produces that supplement is good? Well, I, I heard it on the radio. Or I know because I listened to them. That's not evidence. So I'm interested in evidence when it comes to improving people's health. I, had a, I must tell you this. I had an individual come into the office a few weeks ago. And he said to me, Dr. Wald, I was seeing a doctor in New York City who's moving to New Jersey suddenly. And he took a pinprick of my blood and told me that all my problems were based on Epstein-Barr. I said to that man, with respect, I said, this is not of any fault of yours, but there is no test on the planet that is known that can tell you that. Even if you check that pinprick of blood for Epstein-Barr, if your Epstein-Barr level in your blood was Epstein-Barr IgM, that means, yes, you have an active problem. And if you check your regular blood, Epstein-Barr, and it says IgG, that means it's a past infection, not an active infection. And, and 80% of you out there are positive for Epstein-Barr IgG. If you have IgM, that means it's acute and fairly new. But this blood drop thing is totally something else. This doctor claimed that he figured out that this person's problem was from Epstein-Barr based on this blood test. And there is no technology that, that allows for that. It's not, it doesn't exist. So we've got some crazies out there that make these ridiculous statements. First of all, even if that were true, we still need to build this person's immune system up. And we're not gonna only pay attention to one virus. But having said that, we want reliable tests that are repeatable, meaning that they make sense, there's some science behind them, they are 
reliable and they are hopefully biomarkers where they predict your propensity for death and disability, morbidity, mortality, but also your health span. When we start practicing daily healthy practices and healthy depends on what your needs are and your needs are changing. And when you check your chemistries and other physical factors over time, and enough of them are pointing towards the non-disability stage of life, which is what you want, you're doing something right. The majority of people that I see come to me and quite honestly, even some of the most well-intentioned of them are inconsistent with what they do. Their nutrient levels are all over the place. They're stopping and starting things. There's no rhyme or reason to when they take them. They take them all once a day or they don't take enough of the dose. They frequently don't have them combined correctly. Um, most people I see have never even had a malabsorption test done. How do you know where to start with someone if you don't know if they absorb? And since we know that the body composition test, which measures the phase angle, is the number one most predictive test of, of disability and death and health span, why wouldn't that be done by every nutritionist? I have no answers for you other than I do it. So usually these tests may not be done by practitioners because number one, their level of their license does not allow them to do the tests. And you do have a lot of practitioners out there that do things out of their scope. You don't want that because they don't have the proper training and a weekend course is not gonna do it. And there's a lot of that going around. And so consistency is one thing. Adjusting all of your efforts from time to time on some regular basis with a plan in place so that you know what you're doing is working beyond how you feel about it. Most people that I see still seem to base their concepts of, it, you know, that they're well because they happen to feel good. You can feel good, as I've said before, with cancer. You can feel good with all kinds of problems. But we want to feel good, even great, while our chemistry is uh, also looking good at the same time. Because when those things occur together, when your chemistry looks great together and your functionality, at the same time that you're feeling well, something may be happening there. So one last concept. If you are feeling great and your laboratory tests are looking good and you've done a phase angle measurement and your phase angle measurement is at least a seven, you truly are healthy. If your phase angle is anything less than a seven to a six, very shaky health, but lots of potential. If your phase angle is a five, you have some serious health building to do. And if your phase angle is less than five, I say this maybe joking a little bit, but you've got one foot in the grave. And that is not based on my opinion, it's based on studies of correlating phase angle measurements with cancer progression and phase angle measurements with the progression of other disease. Okay, I hope you did enjoy the show on how we die, but more importantly, how we can live better. 
My name is Dr. Michael Wald. You've been listening to Ask the Blood Detective. Send me in your show concepts to info at blooddetective.com. That's info at blooddetective.com. And you can call me if you want to arrange a distance consultation or an in-person visit with me at 914-552-1442. That's 914-552-1442. And please visit my website because there's lots of great content. You can search it on the homepage in the search bar. I have entire books there for free and also the videos under the video section at the top of the page and, of course, all the audios under the blog. That's at intmedny.com. See you next time.